Hello and welcome to the menu on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippi. This week, Israeli top chef and restaurateur Asaf Granit talks about how he created his successful restaurant Empire and what his idea of great hospitality is. I think philosophy of hospitality and understanding, it's not about you. It's not about you and your chef jacket and your ambition and your ego. It's about them, because the customers are the reason their restaurant exists, not the chef. Then we meet Max Tobias, founder of London's Dusty Knuckle Bakery, which supplies many of the capital's best restaurants with its sourdough. I guess the first thing was to prove to the world that we could make the product and prove to ourselves that people out there wanted to buy it. So it wasn't good enough baking kind of five or six loaves at a time in my kitchen at home. The main bottleneck on production at that point was a big oven. All that and a dinner soundtrack recommendation ahead on this edition of The Menu here on Monocle 24. The first guest in this week's program is one of Israel's most successful chefs and restaurateurs. Asaf Granit was born in Jerusalem and that's also where he began his career in hospitality. Since then he has opened over a dozen restaurants, including Chabor in Paris, which became the first Michelin-starred Israeli restaurant in France, and Palomar and Coal Office in London. And if that wasn't enough, Asaf has also released cookbooks and appeared on various TV shows in his home country. I caught up with him recently to talk about Jerusalem as a place to learn about great food and about his strong ideals in hospitality. I never thought of being a cook. I wasn't that into kitchen. I was born in a half-German, half-Polish house. So cooking wasn't a thing, you know. You would eat only for fuel, only to just walk or study or whatever. And then I did my military service, finished that when I was 20, went to work in a coffee place. Just to earn some money, I was a barista. Not even a good one. And then there was one day the chef didn't come to work and they asked me to go into the kitchen and help them. They gave me this metal bowl and they said, put some salad, sauce, mix it, put it in a plate and ring the bell. So, okay, I did that. Never been in a professional kitchen. And then the waiter came, took the salad, gave it to a table. She took a bite. I was looking from the kitchen window and, and she smiled when she took a bite. And I said to myself, seriously, this is what I'm being paid for. This is like the best job ever in the world. In 30 seconds, I made someone smile. And this is how I fell in love with the kitchen. But I've never learned to cook before. And since that day, I started learning to cook, but I've never learned in a formal school. I only studied with chefs for like 10 years. So I think maybe the good thing about it is that I don't have a dogma. I don't have one mentor which I follow Nobody showed me one way to cook uh, Berblan. I saw five different chefs cooking Berblan. Now I can choose which one is my favorite or it helps me invent my own way. So my mind in a culinary aspect is not limited. How important has Jerusalem been as a place for you to get inspiration and get some influences from many parts of the world? Being born and raised and lived most of my life in such a complex city... I think it's the most important thing in my creation because the city, being so old and being so important to so many different religions and also being so complex with having so many different cultures living in a very, very small territory, creates a lot of tension. Well, that tension sometimes creates conflicts, but that tension creates beautiful stories as well. 
For example, my grandmother from Poland, when she escaped the Holocaust from Warsaw in Poland, she came to Jerusalem and she started living in this house. And a balcony next to her was a lady from Morocco at the same situation. And these stories, they happened in Israel 50 years ago. People immigrating for many reasons to this small, interesting city. And these two ladies, they became best friends. 50 years ago, without internet, I don't think my mother would ever know there is a country called Morocco. Now these two ladies become best friends and they start influencing each other and then cooking each other's food. And me as a grandson, suddenly I eat Moroccan couscous on my Polish grandmother's house. So these unique stories, they can happen only in a city like Jerusalem. This is why I think it's my most important origin for inspiration, yeah. How has the way you cook evolved over the years? Then I know that you interned around Europe and you've launched now over 20 restaurants. How much what you do yourself, how much has that changed over years? Yeah, I think it became more and more uh, into the story of creating a bridge between my city, Jerusalem, into the city I operate in. So if at the beginning I was just coming over to a city like London, okay guys, this is what I do and let me show you. After a while, I understood that the way more interesting story is trying to create a bridge between the city, whether it's Jerusalem and London, Jerusalem and Berlin, Jerusalem and Paris. And then what I try and, and do is take my heritage, my flavors, the perception of hospitality I bring from my country and my city, but incorporate it with the place I'm at. So it makes me way more knowledgeable because I every time I go to a different city, I learn a new culture, new habits. When do people eat? What time of the day? London people eat way earlier than in Paris. It makes your cuisine different. You would cook a different dinner for people that eat at 5.30 than you would for people that start eating at 7.30 in terms of what ingredients you use. So these things, they make you more sensitive. We'll be talking about these restaurants a bit later in this interview, but I know that at the moment you are getting prepared to launch a restaurant, for example, in Berlin. What kind of research have you been conducting now to create that bridge? What have you been trying to learn about the German culture? So Berlin, especially for me personally, is very, very important because my second part of the family, the German side, was actually living in Berlin. There was a big family living there. And my grandmother escaped Berlin at the beginning of the war. And most of the family stayed there and they died in the Holocaust. They were executed. So for me to go back to that city and open a restaurant is a very strong personal statement. So what I did is I studied my family's story. Where did they live in the city? Where were their school? What did they eat? What was the common food on the table? And I tried to create this menu, the new menu for the new restaurant, as a mixture of what I cook now as a grown chef, but what my family used to eat at that city at the 1940s. So it's like not even studying the city of Berlin, it's studying my own family living in Berlin 50 years ago. What kind of dishes did you discover from that era? So you'll get your common schnitzel and cooked potatoes, but there are some new things I didn't know they would eat, like some very interesting techniques of uh, curing fish, which I learned my grandmother used to do. And so I took some recipes from her that my mother remembered her cooking for her back at home, and then also not only the food, but the decor as well, plates, which I remember my grandmother had bringing from Germany to Israel. Also, like a lot of the design in the restaurant materials that we used is stuff I saw on photos from their house in Berlin. So it's very much personal. And you recreated those designs and those plates and everything. Yeah. 
For example, there's this technique of uh, knitting, crochet it's called, and I remember my grandmother had them on the walls. It's very heavy, German, old school. So we took that techniques and we incorporated it in a new modern design to wrap the kitchen. So it's creating this use of old techniques that will come in there and showcasing it now in our new modern place. What is the name of that restaurant, by the way, and when is it opening then? The name is Berta, which is my grandmother's name. Makes sense. And it's opening in something like two months. You mentioned earlier that what you do is not only to create a bridge from Jerusalem to the city where you have your restaurants, but also you bring the Israel take on hospitality mm-hmm. to those cities as well. What is your take in hospitality? Well, my partner, my business partner, Uri, said this sentence, which is quite simple, but it's basically the whole thing. He said, when people go into our restaurant, they need to feel at home. Well, home is a lot of things, and home can be different. Your home is different than mine. But the sensation, the feeling of being home is the same. It's being in a safe place. And it's being in a place that you know whatever's going to happen, somebody's going to take care of you. And this is like the ground base of our hospitality. I don't want your money. I mean, eventually I want you to pay. It's a business. But you're not here to pay for your meal. You're here for me to entertain you, for me to host you, for me to show you what I can do for you. At the end of it, you pay. But it's not the main starting point for us. When you have such a strong view on what great hospitality is, I'm wondering, what are your thoughts when you go to someone else's restaurant and you are served over there and you see what's happening? It's interesting because I would naturally, I would always look for that. And some places, they are not about that. Some places, you go to a very high-end Japanese omakasa, there's no hospitality. There is only technique and it's very cold and sharp. And this is the thing. This is the product. And then you you find yourself in this debate, can I enjoy it? Because it's a totally different approach of hospitality. And I think if you come in the proper state of mind, you can enjoy it. But it's always there when I go to other places. I always look for it, for the motivation behind the business. What is the motivation behind the business? You go to a restaurant, you can get to a beautiful place, and you can see that the owner or the manager or chef, their motivation is to make money. You would feel it immediately. How do you see that? Uh, by the approach, by the language, by the way the menu is written, by the way the waiters will walk up to you, even the way the chairs are shaped. You go to a place and immediately you sit down and you feel the chair is not comfortable enough and you realize the intention is to get you to eat fast and live because they want to make a quick turnover. So there are these elements that most people would never consider, but because it's my business then I, I notice them. Do you think it's that take... On hospitality, you seem so passionate about that's made your restaurant so successful. Yeah, I'm sure about it. I think more than the flavors, more than the storytelling, the human approach, us insisting on, first of all, being humans, first of all, being sensitive and sensitivity. I mean, the customer meets the sensitivity is the last person to meet it. Before the customer, you have your employees and then you have your suppliers. So you have to be very sensitive with them if you want your team To give your customer the feeling that they're home, then naturally they have to feel at home. So it starts with the way you approach your team. It starts with the way you educate your team and you treat your team. And after that, naturally it goes fluidly to the guests. What do you tell your staff? What kind of principles about hospitality? Well, this one thing which I keep saying like a broken record, I always tell them, listen guys, basically what you have twice an evening is a date. 
Okay, because imagine you met, you saw this beautiful lady, you asked for her number, you got the number, you texted her, can we meet, I want to go out with you. She said yes, then you're going to pick her up, so you put in your best suit, and you put the best cologne and the best shoes you have, and then you open the door for her when she walks into the car, and you tell a few white lies about yourselves and the best jokes you have, why you do all of that, because you have two hours with her. And at the end of these two hours, what you want to get is a text message The next morning, I had a great time. Can I see you again? So you use all your weapons, all your tools in order to get her to come back after only two hours. So in a restaurant, you have so many other tools. You have the wine and the food and the music and being sensitive and offering a napkin at the right times. And you have these two and a half hours with your customer. You're on a date with them and you want them the end of the day to get a second date. So if you're in a date mentality throughout every service, It creates this beautiful tension between the chef and the customer, the bartender and the customer, and then there's this beautiful tension that gives energy to the restaurant. Are customers always right? <laughs> no, no. But even when they're wrong, they're right. There is this very clean, clear line where they cannot cross. Like there is a red line when they become violent. or abusive, mm, they, they stop becoming a customer. Then they're obviously wrong, and then there's no more relationship between the restaurant and them. They have to live. Before that line, even they are rude, even they are completely wrong, at the end of the day, you have a choice. Either you're going to fight with them, you will win the fight, but you will lose a customer, or you will find a way to make them happy. And my approach is, like I had this customer that she ordered a black risotto. It was made from black rice. The rice actually grows black. The dish goes out to the table. After one minute, it goes back to the kitchen. The lady comes with a dish to the kitchen, puts it on the counter and says, this risotto is too black. But <laughs> what do you mean it's too black? Obviously, something is wrong with her medications or something. Like, you know she's wrong. You know you're right. Then you have an option. Either you're going to fight with her or you're going to make her happy. How do you make it less black? You put in tomatoes and asparagus and it becomes green and red. And at the end of that night, she becomes like our best friend and best customers and keeps coming back. So there is this, I think, philosophy of hospitality and understanding it's not about you. It's not about you and your chef jacket and your ambition and your ego. It's about them because the customers are the reason the restaurant exists, not the chef. How much has being on television helped? It helps in many ways. It helps, of course, because it keeps you in The crowd knows you and the crowd want to experience your restaurant. So exposure is good to get more and more crowd. But it helps in other ways that are more important, I think, because it brings in young people into the profession. So young guys in school, they're looking at the show. They're saying, you know what? That's actually a good career. I want to be a chef. Where do I go to school? How do I start to work in this industry? When I started becoming a chef or a cook, my mother, she said, why won't you get a real profession? Becoming a cook was like for nobody. Why are you not a lawyer or a doctor? Why aren't you going to university? So now with being on TV, there's this young generation that dreams about becoming a chef or a restaurateur and talented people that will normally follow the, like you said, becoming a lawyer or a doctor are going and trying to become chefs. And that's good for my business. We've been talking about how your ideas about Hospitality have maybe changed or evolved at least. And at the same time, you talked about this amazing story of how your grandmother arrived in Jerusalem and met this Moroccan lady and how there was this amazing mix of influences from around the world. How do you see Jerusalem or Israel more widely 
have changed in terms of culinary culture? Is there evolution? It's funny because the revolution happens outside of the city. So the city itself pretty much stays the same. This mixture of cultures, Orthodox Jews with unorthodox Jews, Palestinians, Russians, Ethiopians, they all live together. They just live together. And suddenly they marry each other. Suddenly they become friends. So they influence each other. But the real revolution is people like my partners and myself, when we take this whole story outside of the city, two different cities around the world, then you have like this evolution of the origin cuisine being transferred into something new. So I think this is the main revolution. And what's next for you? We talked about your Berlin plans already. What else is in the pipeline at the moment? What's keeping you busy? Uh, you said you spend a lot of time in planes. Yeah, yeah, I spent most of the time in lounges, <laughs> in airport lounges. We're doing a deli now in Paris, changing the menu in our restaurant here in London, in call office, and having a new chef here. Next will be Berlin, then we're doing another restaurant in Paris. So we're kind of busy for the next year and a half with new exciting projects. Where is the Paris restaurant and where is the Berlin restaurant? Berlin restaurant is quite close to Potsdamer Platz in a new hotel called the Tail Hotel. It's been open. It's now just being opened. And Paris, we have now four restaurants in the first and second district. And the New Delhi would be in the same restaurant of our Michelin star restaurant, which is Rue Sansover in the second. Israeli chef and restaurateur Asaf Granit, there you are with The Menu on Monocle 24. Here in London, the dusty knuckle has in less than a decade become one of the capital's most appreciated bakeries. The East London-based business now supplies many of the city's best restaurants with its sourdough, and queues are a common sight at the company's two sites. Max Tobias is one of the founders of the business, and he's the one who came up with the idea of launching a bakery after becoming disillusioned with his work, supporting children with emotional and behavioural difficulties. Not that launching a new bakery would have been easy either. Max joined me at Midori House Studio One to talk about how the Dust Knuckle became the success it is today. I didn't even really know what baking consisted of in a professional sense at all. I hadn't worked for a food company, let alone a bakery. I had made bread at home since I was quite young. I started making bread at home, age kind of 12-ish, something like that. And I became weirdly kind of obsessed with it. I used to form these strange obsessions as a kid, and one of them was making bread. So it was just a hobby that I was doing in my spare time. And at the time, there wasn't that much information about particularly sourdough and like making good bread naturally leavened bread it was like a dark art it was this kind of mystical thing which it was really hard to find information on and something about it just really captured my interest and so it continued to be something that I put a lot of my private personal time into and it wasn't until much later that I started thinking about it as a professional thing. Tell me about the moment when the idea for the Dusty Knuckle was born. It's hard to isolate it to one moment. I guess it came really from my previous career working with young people. I had had a few different roles over roughly 10 years, which required me to try and engage with young people who were involved in criminal and violent lifestyles from ages ranging from kind of 12 to 20. And 
I felt like I wasn't getting far enough or kind of as far as I wanted to be getting in terms of life progress with these young individuals because I wasn't able to address the real structural problems that their lifestyles are the result of. Mainly for me that felt quite obvious that it was about whether they had the ability and whether they importantly felt that they had the ability to earn a legitimate wage and to live independently in the future. And it struck me that a lot of the young people I was face to face with didn't really have the same ideas of risk and what the stakes around freedom are and what the stakes around health are to what I felt them to be. So if you don't feel that there's anything compelling about your future, then you're much, much more relaxed about taking huge risks that might risk your liberty or put you in prison or have you stabbed, etc., etc. So I really wanted to create something that gave young people more of a stake in society and in themselves and in their futures. And it just struck me that bread making, baking, food was a really powerful environment potentially where we could involve young people in that process and welcome them into a team and share the spoils of their labour with customers. And that's really kind of, the idea kind of formed gradually. I felt quite clear that I wanted to work with young people in a different way. I was getting a bit fed up working within charities and on kind of other people's money and always with an agenda that comes with funding streams that come from outside sources. And I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial, create a more dynamic environment, which was more self-sustaining. So this is how we ended up with Dusty Knuckle. A great ambition. I'm wondering, how do you go and launch a bakery then? Well, it took a long time and we're still, I feel like we're still launching in a lot of ways. We're learning all the time. I guess the first thing was to prove to the world that we could make the product and prove to ourselves that people out there wanted to buy it. So it wasn't good enough baking kind of five or six loaves at a time in my kitchen at home. The main bottleneck on production at that point was a big oven. So we approached a local pizza restaurant and said, listen, how about we use your pizza oven early on a Saturday morning? We'll come in really early. We'll be out of there by seven. We won't cost you anything on extra energy because your oven will still be hot from your Friday night pizza service. And we'll bake around 50 loaves. We'll leave 10 of them for you in the restaurant and you'll find the place nice and clean and smelling of bread. And so, thankfully, they agreed. So for almost two years, we did that every Saturday. We'd make the dough in my kitchen at home. We'd shape the dough into loaves. We'd walk it down the street where a local cafe allowed us to use their fridges to retard the dough overnight. And then in the morning, we'd wake up at four o'clock, load up the car with the loaves that were sitting in the fridge down the road, drive them to the pizza restaurant, bake them, and then take them to three wholesale customers that we started supplying at that time. So that was it for almost two years. Dusty Knuckle was a one-day-a-week operation, and then it wasn't until 2014 that we moved into a shipping container in Dalston in East London, where we began to bake five days a week. How do you come up with great sourdough? Your business has a great reputation, and people love your bread. Well, firstly, you need great bakers, so I've got to give out a big shout to the baking team. We're super blessed 
over the years, we've had some incredible bakers, very strong people, talented people, people with a great commitment and passion to attending to the detail that you need to make consistently good bread every single day. At the same time, regardless of temperature, it's a real, real difficult thing to pull off. I would say the key is kind of two things. When we teach classes, we say there are two key things you need to take care of. That is number one, the yeast has to be happy. And number two, the house has to be happy. And by the house, I mean the dough that the yeast lives inside, right? So if you have happy little yeasties, which are fermenting, nice and active, high metabolic rate, gassing happily, lots and lots of gas, that's number one. So what conditions do you need for the yeast to be happy? And number two, is the house strong? Is the dough structure right? Is the gluten development right? The fermentation right? And if you have both of those things, then you're in with a good shout for some pretty good bread. What does that mean for people who are trying baking at home? <laughs> it means you need to make sure your raising agent is active. So whether you're using a natural leaven or commercial yeast, you need to give it the right conditions to become active. So that means a food source, the right temperature, the right humidity, the right water content. If you're using a sourdough starter, a nice regular feeding schedule, so it's frothy and active all the time. It's not dormant. So if you use a starter straight from the fridge that you haven't fed for six weeks, you can't expect anything to happen. It's like you've just woken up at five o'clock in the morning, you haven't eaten for six days, you're not going to be running a marathon, right? It needs to be happy. And then the dough structure, you can imagine gluten as an elastic network of strings inside the dough, which can be configured in any number of different shapes or spatial configurations. So you want to try and create a structure. It's the scaffolding of the dough. So you don't want a, a random mishmash. You want to form sheets with the gluten. And that means stretching and folding the dough gradually as it ferments. I'm not sure if that was any more simple, but if you want to know more, then buy the book. I explain all this. The book is out now, indeed. And what caught my attention in the book, actually, is how you talk about the eight years of this business. You write you have experienced two bakery fires and one explosion. Quite a journey. I'm afraid so, yeah. Yeah, the first fire was actually really terrifying, and my amazing business partner, Daisy, thankfully was on hand to deal with it. So the dough, once it's shaped, the dough is proofed in baskets called banatons, which are usually made from like a wood pulp. And every so often you have to bake them on a low heat to dry them out, otherwise they get mouldy. And I think this is a common problem with bakers because what can happen is you fill the oven with banatons, i.e. wood, a combustible source of energy. You put the oven on a low heat nice and safe, and then you're desperate to get out at the end of the day, so you forget to take the banatons out, and then in the morning, the oven timers come on, and they go up to roasting temperature. And as soon as you open the door, the influx of oxygen creates a spontaneous combustion, and we're talking about a lot of a lot of wood pulp, right? So Daisy came into the bakery in our first year. It was very early days. She opened the oven door, and an enormous fireball jumped out at her thankfully she was present-minded enough to figure out what had happened straight away she unloaded the flaming banatons using a wooden baker's peel and dumped them outside crawling on her stomach back and forth between the oven and the door and thankfully nobody was hurt nothing too terrible came as a result but it was pretty scary that was a lesson learnt 
Absolutely, a piece of evidence that shows that baking is quite difficult. Sometimes. Yeah, it can be a dangerous, dangerous pursuit. Tell us now. You mentioned the book, obviously, and in the book you share some great recipes and tips for some of your favorite things you're selling at the cafe. What are some of the best sellers? Our best sellers are, I would say, three things spring to mind. The number one, the potato sour. So we have a bread which we make. It's called the white potato, and it contains raw, shredded. Pressed potato, which we put into the dough at one of the late stages of the mix, and it has the effect of kind of gelatinizing the dough. It's like an extra hit of gooey starch, and what you end up with is a super springy, stretchy, almost crumpet-like interior to the bread, which people just go nuts for. It's just grown and grown and grown in popularity. It's quite fiddly and awkward to make. It's a very sticky, difficult dough to work with. So I think the bakers could probably do with having slightly less of it on the production sheets, but there we are. It's definitely a popular one. And then we make a egg chili cheese sandwich, which we use our focaccia for. That's the sandwich on the rear cover of the book, and that's just like a really simple pickled green chili, coriander, a real nice cheese in there, and a fried egg and some fresh, beautifully made, well fermented focaccia, and that just flies out at the weekend. It's got a bit of a following, a hangover cure, if you like. And then the the cinnamon morning buns, which we make from the offcuts of the croissant dough, which are kind of rolled into spirals with a cinnamon butter. They fly off the shelves too. We can't make enough of them. In the beginning of this interview, when you talked about what you wanted to do with this business was to help young people who are in trouble, what、mm. kind of stories do you have from the past eight nine years? Yeah, so to date we've had about thirty come through the organisation, and we have big ambitions to increase that and really start to scale up that side of our work. It's been really difficult, to be honest. It's a challenging thing what we're trying to do because ultimately the way we want to reach the trainees is to fully integrate them within our team. It's not an add-on onto the business. It's supposed to be embedded into the business, which means trainees coming in to a fast-paced. Work environment with lots of pressure and very high standards, and having to acclimatize to that quite quickly. So, I guess the future for us is figuring out what supporting structures need to be put in place to give them the best possible chance of success, and what resourcing requirements we need over and above what we can generate as a commercial company. So that's something which is still in progress, but we've had, you know, guys. Come to us having been released from prison a week or two beforehand, spent a few weeks with us while they try to reacclimatize to life outside of custody, use the dusty knuckle if you like as a place where they can learn and readjust to some of the routines of life on the outside and being in a place of employment and learning to engage with colleagues in a professionally appropriate way, and they've gone on. To pay positions elsewhere, some of our trainees have stayed with us for a year more. Some of them have ended up being promoted and moved up to assistant manager positions. Some have moved to different sections in the company and perhaps started in the kitchen and moved to pastry and then maybe gone back to the kitchen for a bit. So, one of the other things we're really trying to work on at the moment is trying to kind of refine an onward. Trajectory involving lots of other employers that we can lay out for young people for what their life might look like after Dusty Knuckle, because we know that people don't want to stay here forever, and we want to make sure that they're supported 
in whatever they want to do long term. And what kind of plans do you have for the future as a commercial business? We're trying to figure that out at the moment. It's difficult, man, because they say in business that you have to just keep growing and it's all about growth and, you know, you're supposed to scale up and have five-year plans and all of this stuff. But I think the reality is in an artisan food business, and I hate the word artisan, but for want of a better word, if you're making a product that is defined by the ambition for excellence all the time and really exceptional standards, then you need a dedicated team who are prepared to give that attention to detail. And the bigger you get, the more difficult that gets. Not just because the volumes become more difficult to control, but also because it becomes more difficult to instill cultural norms with a team that's getting bigger all the time and that has a high churn of staff coming in and out. And the bigger you get, the more churn you have, right? So these are lessons that we're trying to get our heads around at the moment. None of us were business owners before Dusty Knuckle. I'd never even worked for a company, let alone tried to run one before. And my two business partners, Becca and Daisy, and myself, we're constantly trying to ask ourselves how we can be better employers, how we can make the product better. And we don't want to sacrifice those things for the sake of growth. But we also recognize that growth keeps things interesting. And so these are the tensions that we're trying to figure out at the moment. So watch this space. Max Tobias there and the new book The Dusty Knuckle is out now. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighborhoods for great recipes. This show was edited and mixed by David Stevens and I am Marcus Hippi. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is... Cindy Lauper with Into the Nightlife. Thanks for listening. <laughs>